Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Good morning, LifePoint. Grace to you. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ on this second Sunday of Advent. Um, I have the privilege this morning of introducing to you a new sermon series. And the series is called The Season of Joy, kind of continuing a theme that's been with us uh, since the earlier part of the, of the year. It's a season of, the season of joy is what the series is called. And the purpose of this series is to show that God sent Jesus as the Messiah who came in humility and obscurity with promise and glory to bring eternal joy to the world. And over the next few weeks, we're going to learn more about what that means. Today, I want to begin at the starting point of Luke's gospel. So if you have your Bible with you, and I hope that you do, uh, go ahead and find Luke's gospel, chapter one. That, that's what our text will be from this morning. You know, this past summer, uh, a person I know remarked on something that kind of stuck with me. They said that they needed a vacation from their vacation. Have you ever heard somebody say that? I need a vacation from my vacation. It's a first world problem, right? This happens when you take a trip. And the purpose of that trip is to help you unwind and relax, to decompress. Maybe you want to lay on a beach somewhere for a week. That's the idea. And yet somehow, some way, that trip ends up having the opposite effect on you. And you end up coming back more exhausted than you were before you left. I think this is, for many people, how the holidays can be. It's often called the most wonderful time of the year. And for many, it can be the most exhausting time of the year. There are so many people to visit, so many things to buy, so many places that we have to be, that by the end of it, you wind up needing a holiday just to help you recover from the holidays. I think that's one reason why it matters so much that you're here today. Because we all need to be reminded, we need to remind ourselves, we need to remind one another that before this season is about anything else, it is a season of joy. It's a season of joy because it's an opportunity for us to behold the Messiah's appearing and to prepare our hearts to receive him. We sing about that every year. We sang about it this morning. Let every heart Prepare him room. So it's in that vein today that I want to extend a simple invitation to you. And here it is. Prepare your heart for the Messiah by preparing others for the Messiah. Prepare your heart for the Messiah by preparing others for the Messiah. Over these next moments we have together, I encourage you, ask yourself, have I prepared him room? Like in your heart of hearts, are you made ready 
to receive Jesus, the Messiah. Hold that question in your mind as we read our text together. Again, we'll be in Luke chapter 1. We'll focus on verses 16 and 17, but I'll actually begin reading in verse 5 so that we can kind of get the, the bigger picture of what's happening here. This will help us find our way. So Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, God's word says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, He was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Now again, these next two verses are our text for this morning. Verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Thanks be to God for his word to us. Based on these last two verses, verses 16 and 17, There are two things that are true of every Christian in this room. Like if you have received Jesus Christ, if you have trusted in him to redeem your life, and if you're walking with him by faith, these two things are true of you whether you realize them or not. They're true of you whether they feel true of you or not. Think of them as spiritual realities. That because the Messiah has come, and because the Messiah is coming again, these two spiritual realities now define you. They now define everything about your life. Here's the first one, the first spiritual reality. You are prophetic. You are prophetic. It's been said that the night is darkest just before the dawn. You've heard that saying, I trust. I think that saying nicely captures the mood here at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. At the end of chapter 1, Zechariah says something very revealing. Listen to these words. He says, The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That statement shows how Zechariah and the people of Israel saw themselves. 
They saw themselves as being in a, a period of spiritual darkness. It was an extended period of divine silence and it had lasted for hundreds of years because in that time, no prophet had emerged to speak to the people of Israel on God's behalf. You see, Israel, they had had a rich prophetic tradition. Their history had been defined by God's word being delivered to them through people like Moses and Elijah, through people like Isaiah and Jeremiah. But centuries had passed without anyone to take up the mantle that had been carried by these men, which was a hard pill to swallow, given the fact that the Old Testament concludes with a promise from God that he would raise up another prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. At the end of the book of Malachi, it was foretold that a prophet would emerge in the likeness of Elijah. Listen to what God says in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. This promise, it hangs in the background of the text we're looking at today. Look, look at verse 17. It says that John would minister in the spirit and power of Elijah. It says also that one of the results of John's ministry would be that the hearts of the fathers are turned back to their children. So you can see there that the angel, he, he's taking these words straight from Malachi's prophecy. It couldn't be more clear. Something is happening. God is at work doing something major. And he has decided to start in an unlikely place. Think about that for a second. For centuries, Israel had been burdened by the weight of an unrealized promise. Spiritually speaking, they had been wandering through a valley of shadows. They longed for the light of God's promise to break through and bring an end to the darkness. And then one day, apparently out of the blue, God sends an angel to an old man. An old man who was well past his years of being able to procreate. And the angel tells this old man, the night is coming to an end, the light is on its way, and your son is going to get people ready for it. He's going to prepare the way for the light. That was, that was John's assignment. That was his job description. It was the reason for which he had been born. Get people ready for the light. Preach to the children of Israel to make them a people prepared. This is confirmed in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So you can see there's, there's a very important distinction being made there. When Zechariah is told that many would rejoice at the birth of John, it's not because John's birth was the point. 
Now, John's birth was not the main event. John was simply the one who was sent ahead of the sunrise to say that the night is coming to an end. Get ready for some daylight. Yes, John's birth is an occasion for joy because it meant that the sunrise from on high would soon cast its light upon the valley of shadows. The light and life of men would soon drive away the darkness and the gloom of all who longed for his appearing. That's why John's birth is unique. That's why it's significant. One scholar says this about what's happening at the, at the beginning of Luke's gospel. He writes, from the very outset of the story it's narrating, Luke's gospel endeavors to help its readers understand that a new era in salvation history has dawned. The Holy Spirit is active again. Enabling prophetic activity just as in the days of old. This revival of prophetic activity can mean only one thing. That the messianic age has finally arrived. So the significance of John's birth and the significance of John's ministry must be seen in reference to the coming of Jesus the Messiah. That's how the New Testament is presenting it to us. There's a strong indication that the biblical writers want us to think of John as belonging to the tradition of Israel's Old Testament prophets. He broke the silence that had long lingered since Malachi's prophecy. He was the last to carry the prophetic mantle before it was handed to Jesus of Nazareth at the start of his public ministry. Hebrews 1.1 tells us this. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. So you see, before Jesus came, only a, a hand-selected few would have the privilege of making important announcements on God's behalf. This was an elite group. But now that Jesus has come, he himself is the announcement. This is why in the Gospel of John, Jesus is called the Word. He was the Word who's with God and the Word who was God. And in Jesus, all the divine, all the divine fullness was pleased to dwell in order that the nature and the character of the God of Israel would be made decisively known. And when Jesus was pleased to become flesh, to dwell among us, to redeem us from sin and death, he saw to it that the privilege of announcing good news was not just entrusted to an elite few, but it was entrusted to all of us, all who are in Christ. The prophetic mantle was passed from John to Jesus. And that was the last time it was held by a singular individual because Jesus, by his authority, passed the prophetic mantle on to us so that the work of getting people ready for the Messiah now belongs to the church. If you're in Christ, it belongs to you. Don't miss this, friends. Every Christian has news from God to share and power from God to share it. That's true of you. You have news that is from God to share, and you have power that is from God 
to share it. Lifeway Research conducted a study showing that if you put a a group of Christians like this in a room together, less than half of them will share their faith with somebody in the next six months. Less than half. There There are many possible reasons for this reticence to share our faith openly. Let's look at a couple, or at least three of them here. Some of us are afraid of being rejected or persecuted. We fear what it might cost us to open our mouths and make Jesus known. Some of us are worried that we might not know all the answers to people's questions or objections. Right? We, we lack confidence in our ability to articulate and defend the faith. And, and, and we don't want to appear foolish or uninformed in the eyes of other people. And then there are some among us today who are simply apathetic about the things of God. It's not that you're anxious. It's not that you're afraid. It's just that you're uninterested. Your heart and mind are preoccupied with worldly concerns. In each and any of these cases... What we most need is to take hold of the true nature of the gospel. Because here's the thing, any or all of our fears may come true. We may end up looking foolish. We might end up being disliked or worse. But Paul tells us that in the book of Romans, he says that there is power available to us. Come what may, because the gospel of Jesus Christ itself is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. That's where your power comes from. Your power is sourced in the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that when you bring the gospel into any situation, you can rest assured that regardless of what happens, God's power resides there with you. Yes, Persecution may come in some form or another. Jesus said that it would, but he also said that our faith would overcome the world because he has overcome the world. Yes, in the eyes of the world, you may look foolish for insisting that the gospel is true, even if you don't have all the answers. But scripture tells us that this is actually accounted as wisdom in the eyes of our God, which is the only thing that matters. The book of James says to those of us who are apathetic here today, it warns us and invites us in chapter four, cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. What's the point I'm making? What am I striking at here? I want you to see that the promises and commands of God's word counteract every excuse we bring to the table for not making other people ready for the Messiah. And even if doing that is very risky for you, even if it comes at great personal expense for you, God will not fail you. He has promised you that. You can bank your life on that. You can place your hope in that. His power to save, to redeem, and to rescue will be made known. This was demonstrated powerfully and quite profoundly on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
The book of Acts tells us that the disciples were hiding away in a room. They were waiting on God in prayer. It says that they were small in number and they were unimpressive in stature. But that did not limit God's power in Christ. Acts tells us that on that day they told forth the mighty works of God to those gathered in Jerusalem, people from all over the world, from different tribes and nations and languages. And it says that when the Holy Spirit fell upon the church, God's power supernaturally overcame the language barrier. And people heard the gospel in their own native language. And it would be hard to overstate the significance of what happened on that day. Because Jesus took the Holy Spirit who had anointed the prophets of old. And he poured out that same spirit upon the church of God so that we might go forth and tell his mighty deeds. Yes, the spirit and power of Elijah is now the spirit and power of the church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the Apostle Peter is saying in Acts 2.17. That what was foretold by the prophet Joel has come to pass in the church. That God has poured out his spirit on all flesh. He says, your sons and daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. Do you know what that means? Do you know what that's saying about you? It means that you are prophetic. Yes, you. You may not feel prophetic. You may not think of yourself that way, but it's true. Don't doubt it. Don't discount it. You are prophetic. The enemy would have you doubt that, of course. He would plant reasons in your mind for not making Jesus known. He wants to fill you with the dread of anxiety and fear. But God's word is reminding you today that you have every reason to be confident and no reason to fear. In Christ, you have all you need. You lack for nothing because God never calls you to do something that he does not equip and empower you to do. Think about what's been entrusted to the church. He's given us his spirit and power because he wants us to get the world ready for his appearing. Scripture tells us that Jesus once appeared as a meek and mild baby to seek and save that which is lost, but he's coming again. And this time he's coming as a conquering king who will return to judge the living and the dead. And as we anticipate the hour of his return, God calls each and every one of us to be a people who prophesy the good news of joy to the world, who show the world through prophetic action that God has sent his son, who by the blood of his cross has made peace between a holy God and a sinful humanity. That brings me to the second point that needs to be made about every Christian in this room. The second spiritual reality concerning every Christian here today that defines your life is that you are sent. You are sent. As we await the Messiah, we are not merely biding our time. 
We're not twiddling our thumbs. We're not sitting around checking our, our watches, waiting till we can get out of here. We're not escapists. No, the church goes before the Lord to practice the ministry of reconciliation. That's our mission. That's what we're called to do. That's what Jesus Christ has commissioned us to be about. Look again at our text. It says twice that as a result of John's ministry, the people will turn. The people will turn. The the angel that has appeared to Zechariah, he uses that language and then he reuses it to make an important point. One that we dare not miss today. First he says that John will be used by God to turn the children of Israel back to the Lord their God. That's in verse 16. And then in verse 17 he says that John will be used to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and to turn the disobedient back to the wisdom of the just. Think of this as a a two-way pattern of reconciliation. A two-way pattern of reconciliation. There's reconciliation between God and humanity. You know, the people had forsaken the Lord their God and they needed to be called back to him. That's vertical reconciliation. It's lives turned back toward God. And then there's reconciliation between people who are estranged. That's horizontal reconciliation where people turn in their hearts toward one another. So through John, God was going to get people ready for the Messiah by bringing them back to the Lord their God and by bringing them back together, by restoring human relationships that had been ruined by sin. And this would begin, it says, in the most foundational of all relationships. It was going to be a new social order where entire families were reconciled under the lordship of the Messiah and where entire communities begin to walk according to the wisdom of the Lord our God once again. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul refers to this as the ministry of reconciliation. Listen to what he says about this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So in other words, not only does God reconcile with people, he reconciles through people. He sends us on ahead to advance his work of reconciliation in the world. So if you've been reconciled to God in Christ, this means that he has given you an assignment. You are an agent of reconciliation. You are sent ahead of the Messiah to practice the ministry of reconciliation amidst the broken places and the broken peoples in the world around you. And what is the aim of your assignment? What is the aim of this ministry but joy to the world? Joy to the world. When Jesus returns from heaven with all the saints And the angels, when the sky cracks open and the glory of the Lord is finally revealed from heaven, it will be marked by unending joy that pulses throughout the entirety of the created order. Listen to what it says in Psalm 96. It's described beautifully here. The psalmist writes, Let the heavens be glad 
and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So on that day, when Christ returns, when he comes to judge the earth, we want as many people as as possible to have prepared him room. A multitude of sinners reconciled to God and joining in with the joyful noise of all creation so that every knee will joyfully bow and every tongue will joyfully confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory and praise of our great God and Father. The sea will roar. Yes, the field will exult. Wonderful. The trees of the forest will sing for joy. Amen. But we, with Christians from every tribe and nation and language, will cry out with a loud voice, with hearts that are exploding with joy in Christ, and we will sing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's the aim of the ministry of reconciliation. Its objective is joy to the world. That's that's what we're moving toward. Today I'm laboring for you to receive this because your response to it reveals the extent to which your heart is prepared to receive the Messiah. So let me circle back to the question I asked at the start. Have you prepared him room? Have you? In your heart of hearts, are you ready to receive him? Jesus the Messiah who is from heaven, who has come to earth in the flesh to dwell among us. One important way that you can evaluate this is by how you practice the ministry of reconciliation. This might be one of the most important ways that you can evaluate this. You can't prepare him room while neglecting this ministry. Biblically speaking, They can't be separated. Your your preparation for the Messiah and your practice of the ministry of reconciliation, they go together. That's how it's meant to be. You and I, we're, we're sent ahead of the Lord. We're sent ahead of the Messiah to implore people, be reconciled to God, be reconciled to others in Christ. So I exhort you today, don't be unprepared. Don't let this season pass you by without attending carefully to these things. Instead, make the ministry of reconciliation your priority in this season. Make magnifying Jesus your aim. Invite others to behold his coming. Prepare the way for him. That's what you're sent to do. I want to get a little more specific here now that we're nearing the end of our time together. I want to do that by saying just a couple of things about how you can practice what we're talking about here today. Here's the first thing. Many of us cross paths at this time of the year with unbelieving family members. You've got that surly uncle or that cranky cousin, right? Maybe it's a sibling. Maybe it's your parents. 
Whoever it is, someone will be hanging around who has not yet experienced the Messiah's reconciling work. They've not yet experienced the joy that Jesus brings. And this shows because they treat you weird, right? That weirdness, the way they treat you, it's because they know you're a Christian. And it reveals that there's a world of difference between your life and theirs. And overcoming that can be really, really awkward. It can be awkward to relate to them. So maybe it's just easier to not even try. Maybe in your heart you've kind of resigned like, you know, to, some, to the fatal conclusion that oh, they'll never know Jesus. My, my presence here, it doesn't make any difference for them. Maybe you're even dreading it to some extent. Like you're dreading that moment when you see them face to face and you have to look them in the eye and they're just like, oh, I don't feel like doing this. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Might I suggest a shift in your thinking if that's how you feel? What if instead of viewing that as a situation, an awkward situation that you must survive, And what if instead you start viewing it as a situation that is full of potential into which you're being sent by God? We want to help you with that today. We're putting this in your hands because we want you to take it out of this place and we want you to place it in the hands of someone who needs to be prepared to receive the Messiah. And as God would have it, you're just the person to do that. You're the right person for the job, which is why he sent you there. That's why he's placed you there. Because that's who you are. You're sent. So let us help you. Take this with you today. Go put a business card ornament on that tree out there with someone's name on it. And put yourself on the hook. Be accountable for that. You're going to have to walk by that tree for the next like three weeks. And you're going to be reminded, oh, I put that, that name up there. You're on the hook when you do that. So I strongly encourage you, go and do that. We want to help you. We want to equip you. We want to encourage you. So let us do those things by making a good use of those resources that we're handing out today. And then the last thing I'd like to say is to the parents in the room. Moms and dads, make sure you're preparing your children. To be a Christian parent is to be sent. Remember, the the ministry of reconciliation begins in the home. One of the results of John's ministry, if you remember, is that the hearts of the fathers and the hearts of the children would be turned toward one another. So parents, moms and dads, open your hearts to your children this season. Whether they're young, whether they're older or grown, Open your hearts to your children this season and show them Jesus. There's no better time of the year to do that. This is is the perfect time. I love what John Piper says in his Advent devotional. He encourages parents, bend the efforts of your imagination to make the wonder of the king's arrival visible for your children. Bend the efforts of your imagination. Parents, are you prepared to do that? Do you have ways that you can do that? It's not brain surgery. It's not rocket science. It can be very simple. 
It could be as simple as opening up the Bible, reading a story, and acting it out together as a family. It could be as simple as going over to the resource wall here on the the North Community Room and picking up a family Advent devotional that you can read together as a family at the end of every day. There are a million ways to do it. Leverage your creative abilities to make the wonder of the king's arrival known to your children. Do what you can to saturate your home with good news of great joy. Talk to your kids about Jesus every opportunity that you get. And then stand back and be amazed at the way that God uses that in their young hearts and lives. Because he will. He will. Whether you're a parent or not, whoever you are, whatever walk of life you come from today, we all need to respond to this simple invitation as the Holy Spirit is leading us. Prepare your heart for the Messiah by preparing others for the Messiah. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, two things are true of you. Number one, you are prophetic. Number two, you are sent. In Jesus, God has placed you where you are and he has given you everything that you need in order to prepare the way for the Messiah. And it's all for his glory, it's for the increase of your joy, and it's for joy to be multiplied to the entire world. That's what this season is really about. Let every heart prepare him room. Will you pray with me?